Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Most of us yardmen would say that over time we develop an extra sense of danger close at hand. For me, the earliest glimmer of it appeared when I was still new to Lambeth Division, wearing a scratchy blue coat with shoulders a few inches wider than my own. And I felt my way for the first time down a shadowed alley, truncheon in hand, braced for whatever skulked around the corner. After a dozen years of policing, I like to believe my instinct had been honed to a keen blade that I'd seen enough London crime not to be surprised by much, that I could sense the approach of something especially vicious by a prickling along my arms or a tightening below my ribs. This is G.P. Gottlieb, host for New Books and Literature, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. And today I'm talking to Karen Oden, whose fourth novel, Down a Dark River, begins the Inspector Coravin mystery series. In this police procedural, it's 1878, and the city of London is simmering with anger at Scotland Yard. And the press fuels the outrage when week after week, another woman is found floating down the Thames River, her hands bound and her skirts cut open. Inspector Coravin and his young assistant, Inspector Stiles, are working around the clock to stop another murder, but they're also dealing with a missing wife who's been stashed away in a disgusting, insane asylum, grieving fathers who refuse to answer questions, and bitter fighting between the River Police and Scotland Yard. When his own lover is also threatened, Inspector Coravin loses his battle to stay sober, but it's a race against time. Hi, Karen. Thanks for joining me today. Hi, Galit. Thanks for having me. So this is your fourth mystery set in 19th century London. Why are you so interested in Victorian England? Oh, well, it's it's an amazing, amazing period. Queen Victoria was on the throne from 1837 to 1901. Everything changed in those six decades. I mean, it's kind of amazing. And I started my, uh, my interest began, I guess, in graduate school. I was at NYU. I was writing my dissertation on Victorian railway disasters. And I just found that entire period fascinating, full of conflict and social upheaval and women's rights and children's rights and changing laws and um, wars. Um, It's really, it's really an amazing time. And so when I came to write my first book, A Lady in the Smoke, um, I was I was sitting at home. I was here in Arizona and my son was maybe a year and a half or two years old. And I was uh, I think my brain was beginning to rot. I was reading a lot of Goodnight Moon and um, I thought, why don't I just dig out that old dream of writing a book? But I thought, well, what do I know about? that hasn't been done a hundred times already. I mean, is there anything that I could write about that would be sort of interesting or original? And I thought, well, there's one thing I do know more about than probably most people even want to know about, which is Victorian railway disasters. And so my first book 
was a lady in the smoke about a young woman who uh, is traveling with her mother in 1874 London. They're on their way home from uh, London season. It's been unsuccessful. Elizabeth has not found a suitor. And they're uh, traveling north to their house, um, which is, you know, some ways out of London, and they're in a railway crash. And that was where my, you know, really my first serious attempt at writing a novel began. And then once that got published, I just sort of stuck there for my second book, um, A Dangerous Duet, which is about a young woman in 1875 who's a Victorian pianist. And then my next book, which is about a woman who is an artist at this late school in 1875. And um, I've just kind of stayed there. I hunkered down next to the Thames with the mudlarks and the, you know, dead bodies. And that's where I am. (laughs) Michael Coravin, your protagonist, is a wonderful but very flawed character. Can you say more about him? Oh, Michael, I'm a little in love with him. I really am. He... He grew up in Whitechapel. Um, and just to give you some context, in the 1880s, the Jack the Ripper murders took place in Whitechapel. It is not a nice section of town. And Michael grows up there in the 1860s in sort of an Irish enclave. And one of the things you have to kind of understand, too, is that at that point, um, it's after the potato famine years, and a lot of Irish have come over to Liverpool and then down to London. And it's crowded. Um, uh, and there's a lot of anti-Irish feeling. Those um, no Irish need apply posters were around, you know, for jobs and things. Um, so he grew up in um, sort of a seedy, tough situation. His father died when he was young and his mother actually vanishes when he's 11. Uh, he doesn't know why or how. And he, you know, is kind of taken in by some of the neighbors. But one night he's sitting there at the dinner table with a woman who has, I guess, four other mouths to feed. And Michael reaches for an extra slice of bread and he sees her mouth tighten. And in that moment, he knows I need to earn my own way. Like I can't just be sitting here at the table and not do something to contribute. It's not fair. And he's smart and he's strong for his age. And so he goes out and gets a job thieving. And there were these gangs of boy thieves that were run by, um, by men. Um, you think like, like Fagan and, um, you know, in Dickens, um, in Oliver Twist. And, uh, so, so Michael Corvin becomes what's known as a star glazer. And it's, they, they would put together groups of three boys. One would be a lookout. One would be the star glazer who breaks in by sticking his knife in very carefully into a shop window and popping it out noiselessly so nobody hears. And then the third one would grab everything in the window and they'd run. So that's what he started doing. Then he um, took a job working on the docks. Um, He became a bare knuckles boxer. Um, And along the way, he was actually adopted by the Doyle family. Um, he befriends um, Pat Doyle. He basically saves him from being killed in an alley. And Pat takes him home and Ma says, okay, you can stay. And um, so he has, and, and Ma Doyle's really, I love her character. She's um, tough, but she's also very empathetic. And um, she's very kind, like deeply kind. 
And she's also a great storyteller. She's the one who, you know, gathers the kids all together in bed and tells them all the old Irish folk tales and that kind of thing that Corbin, you know, sort of grows up on um, as a result. Um, but anyway, so he's got this mix of he's had to be really, really tough. And at the same time, he's had a great example of kindness and empathy in front of him for much of his teenage years. Um, and then he is, um, he's bare knuckles boxing for this guy named O'Hagan. And one night O'Hagan comes up to him and says, Hey, you've got to throw this match. And Mickey's like, why? You know, I, I, I always win my matches. He's like, yeah, I know I'm not making any money on you. Nobody will bet against you. Like you need to throw this match. And he can't, Corvin can't bring himself to do it. And so O'Hagan throws him out and then he's thrown out of Whitechapel and then he eventually becomes a policeman. And, you know, a lot of the things that he learned in Whitechapel, like being good with his fists, being good with his knife, being decisive and strong, these are great traits for a policeman, right? I mean, you need to be able to like think on your feet and you need to be tough and, you know, sort of physically um, courageous. Um, but one of the things that he has to learn over the course of the book, and one of the things that his love interest, Belinda Gale, helps him understand is that, um, you know, it's, it's great to be the rescuer because then you never have to confront your own vulnerabilities, but you will be a better policeman if you have some empathy and understanding for people. Let's go back to that moment when he is with Mrs. With Ma Doyle, and um, he realizes that the family doesn't have a lot to eat, and he steals a loaf of bread. I wondered if that was a nod to Les Mis or Miserables. And he says, Corvin says, this is a quote from you. From then on, I knew that being weak won me a measure of tolerance, but eventually ran out. The virtues that brought lasting appreciation were strength and certainty, decisiveness verging on brashness and self-reliance. Mm -hmm. You respond. Yeah, he learns that. He learns that really early, even before he meets the Doyles. That's actually at um, one of the early moments when he's um, still being taken care of by one of his, you know, one of the other neighbors. Um, and he, but that, I think that lesson just furrows into his heart. I mean, he just, he, he believes it and he understands that survival and also love and appreciation from other people are going to be depending on those qualities. So he takes, he, you know, he makes an effort to develop them. So, so. you, um, you wrote that, quote another quote river men never asked for help from the yard if they could avoid it um corvin works at scotland yard what's going on between scotland yard and the river police then oh well um in 1877 um there was a scandal that nearly shut down scotland yard um four of the senior inspectors were put on trial for taking bribes from con men. I mean, thousands of pounds worth of cons, these people ran. And um, so they were put on trial at the Old Bailey, which is kind of like um, like being on Judge Judy. Like everybody saw it, everybody knew about it. It was, it was, it was highly public. Um, the Old Bailey is actually right there on the border between Westminster um, and London City proper. It's right there in the center of London. And uh, the public could come and watch. And it was humiliating. And the newspapers made hay with this. I mean, they had these terrible headlines. One of them was something like, um, plain clothes men are plain thieves. Um, you know, comments like, 
all the detectives should be at the bottom of the Thames, we'd be better off. Um, and so there was a lot of, of public distrust toward the yard. And so there was a separation between the rivermen who are stationed at Wapping, which is about six miles east of the yard. Um, and they they were in charge of policing the river. Like they um, would take care of things like smuggling or like if someone was trying to um, loot some of the boats that were, you know, moored on the Thames, something like that. So that was, that was sort of their province and the yard um, was largely plainclothes men who were dealing with things like murder and um, you know, serious crimes in the city. And then you also had, of course, all the local divisions that had the uniformed constables and the people who walked the beats and, um, and that kind of thing. So, I mean, policing was a little bit fragmented in London at this point. And so I think naturally there were just, um, I don't know, uh, I don't want to say rivalries, but I guess that's kind of the right word, rivalries between, you know, the uh, uniformed men and the plainclothes men and the yard and the river police, um, just sort of naturally. Yeah. So Corvin is in the middle of searching for a missing wife, and he gets word about the first dead woman on the river. Why does he say, missing people claw at my nerves even worse than dead ones? Um, I trace that back to his feeling about his mother. She vanished. And for a solid six months, he ran around Whitechapel looking for her and he'd think he'd see her at the corner, but then it would turn out to be someone else. And I think that sense of uncertainty of never knowing, I mean, I'm not saying it would be a relief to find out she was dead, but that uncertainty, I mean, he had to live with that. And he's lived with it for years and years. I mean, you know, 20 years of uncertainty, not knowing what happened to her. So I think that for him, missing people, um, it just really claws at him in a way that, you know, a dead body in front of you is terrible, but at least, you know, mm-hmm. Corvin's friend, James says that there are four motives for murder, fear, revenge, passion, and greed. Can you introduce briefly introduce James? Do you agree with him? Uh, I, you know, I do, I do agree with James. Uh, James Everett actually was, um, his, he made his first appearance in A Dangerous Duet, my second book. Um, and that's kind of how my, my books are sort of knit together. They all occupy the same world, but I just kind of pluck a different protagonist out to, to talk about their story, if that makes sense. So a lot of the secondary characters overlap, like Tom Flynn, my newspaperman, he's in all of my books. Um, so, but Dr. Everett is, uh, um, a rather progressive Victorian medical man. He is in charge of a ward at St. Anne's that handles um, mental disturbances and diseases of the brain. So he's sort of a proto-psychologist, a proto-neurologist before those, you know, those categories were sort of, you know, in, in medical practice. And he also believes in treating patients with kindness. Um, at the very beginning of the book, uh, you know, Corvin has to go into an insane asylum in order to retrieve um, this woman, Madeline Beckford. And it's a horror. And th- it was pretty realistic. Um, you know, you know, the, the, you know, the, the cell like, um, room with a thin pallet and the rats running around. I mean, unfortunately that was, you know, that was sort of true in certain parts of London. Um, whereas Dr. James Everett is kind of more progressive. He believes in light, um, sunshine, having 
nice paintings on the wall, having kind nurses. Um, so he's kind of my, my, my proto medical man. Yes. Mm-hmm. How does Mrs. Belinda Gale fit into Coravin's life and how will she fit into the series? Oh, I love Belinda. Um, my daughter, uh, who's, who's, she's 21, and she is actually my first beta reader. Her name's Julia. And when she first read this, she said, Mom, Belinda Gale is your self-plant. I didn't know what that was. Oh, no. <laughs> um, but she is. And Belinda Gale is a novelist, you know, one in a long, long line of women novelists, beginning with Afra Ben um, back in 1688. She actually wrote the first, what I consider the first English novel um, called Orinoco. And there's a long line, you know, um, Mariah Edgeworth, Fanny Burney, not to mention Jane Austen, of course, and George Eliot and the Bronte sisters and um, Mrs. Henry Wood. All of these women um, are novelists who either made their living by their pen or at least contributed very significantly to their households. And I wanted to put a novelist in this book because I think to some extent, um, Corvin's process um, and the process of, of, a, of a detective is to put events in order, you know, in, in a plot line that makes sense. He has to create a story. He has to create a complete narrative um, in much the same way that a novelist creates a complete narrative. And even and also a therapist often helps a patient create a complete narrative. Um, and I'm fascinated by the power of narratives and the idea of filling in gaps and things like that. So Belinda is sort of the I'm writing fiction counterpart to Detective Corvin, who is um, writing out a sequence of events that leads to a resolution of a mystery. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. So, but she is also the EQ to his street smarts. I mean, she's the one who is sort of more psychologically um, astute. She, she challenges him and pushes him to, own up to some of the baggage that he carries. And she also has insights that simply because the way she thinks are different from what he comes up with. And so she often will hand him a, a something and he'll think, oh, that's what I needed, you know? But she's a Victorian woman who so unusual for that generation who refuses to get married. Mm-hmm. She does, um, mostly because her father on his deathbed made her swear that if she did get married, she had to basically vet the guy for at least four or five years. Um, and he also put her money in a trust that could not be um, touched by her husband, um, because at that time, um, under the um, the legal doctrine of coverture, a woman who married all of her property would instantly be property of her husband, which has lots of legal and economic and social implications. Um, but what happened somewhere around, I think like the middle of the century, like 1850s, um, there became this, this um, I don't know, a trend, I guess you'd say, um, especially in working middle class and middle to upper class um, to put the money in a trust that was exempt from coverture. So it was only for the woman's use and she did not have to hand it over to her husband and she could use it for herself and for her children if she wanted. So um, her father really enabled her to stand on her own two feet by, by giving her that. Yeah. 
Um, Inspector Styles, young, really good guy. Did you create him as a balance for Corvin? Yes, yes. He is. Um, he's he's public school educated. Um, and and what what that means is fee paying. So like. English public school is the same thing as our private school, for example. So Styles went to the equivalent of, you know, American private school. He's got a little more polish, a little more EQ, a little more just kind of awareness about how to be pleasing and amiable. And he's younger. He's, you know, nine years younger than Corvin. Um, so he, yeah, he is. He and, he and Corvin sort of balance each other out um, when they do investigations together. Um, I've read Mysteries for years but only learned about um, red herrings when I started writing my own. Can you give us a little sneak preview without giving away anything too important? Oh yeah. Um, Yeah. So, so I actually, in the book, I explain what a red herring is and um, a herring is a kind of, um, if I'm remembering correctly, it's, this is terrible. I mean, it's really terrible that my mind is so much on my next book that I, I think pieces of Down and Dark River have sort of fallen out of my head, but, um, but, but a red herring, you know, is a, a herring is a kind of fish. And so what they did was they would train, um, hunting dogs. They would lay it out and they would train the hunting dog to not follow it. And it was hard because it was really enticing. Um, so, but it was something that could a pull, a, a pull if, if, it, if it pulled the, the hunting dog off track, they knew that the hunting dog was not ready to go out into the field yet. Right. So they needed, they needed to do, do more training with the dog. So it's, it's like this, basically this like offshoot thing that, that the dogs have to be trained not to follow. And it's so tricky how you did it. So, cause the reader doesn't know which, what's going to end up being important. There's so many important things happening. Which all seemed very likely. It's a big city, a lot of crime. So it was all very likely. Okay, next question. How did you decide to weave one of Alfred Lord Tennyson's poems into the plot? Not something one would expect in a, in a historical mystery. Oh, gosh. Um, you know, really, I, I, I guess the place to you know sort of start with this is how I came to write the book at the very beginning, which was a few, I don't know, six or seven, maybe even longer. I don't know how many years ago. I read a article and it was about, it was a contemporary article. I think it might've been in the New Yorker about race and the law in the United States. And in the article, one of the small stories, like a vignette was about a young black woman in Alabama who had been jaywalking across a quiet street. And a car came around the corner and hit her. Uh, the car was, a, it was a, an expensive car. I think it was like, I don't know, like a Lexus or something. Um, the man was white. He was DUI. He wasn't, he wasn't technically DUI. He was driving under the influence, but he was not legally drunk. Um, he hit her and she was in the hospital for months with injuries. And at, they, they, you know, the family sued and the judge awarded her $2,000. And yeah, I mean, you know, I, I read that and just kind of like clawed at my heart, you know, just kind of thinking, oh my God. But what struck me afterwards too was, was the father's response because he was understandably furious and outraged. Um, and, but instead of 
going after the judge, he threatened the judge's daughter. And this got me thinking about the nature of revenge. Because I think sometimes revenge is thought of as something sort of simple, like an eye for an eye. It feels very sort of glib to me. Like it's, it, it, and and it's, it's too glib for what revenge is. I think sometimes revenge is a desperate last-ditch plea for empathy. Because I think what was happening in that case was the father wanted the judge to understand what it was to almost lose a daughter. And so when I started thinking about, okay, I really want to write about revenge and empathy. I want to write about how people... Revenge, revenge is, revenge is just—I don't know—can eat you from inside, and empathy might be the thing that could help. And so I wanted to write about that, and I wanted to put it in Victorian England because, of course, that's where I set everything. And I thought, well, how do I do this? We don't have cars, you know. We don't have a car to do this with. And I said, well, what about a boat? And that got me thinking about boats, which got me thinking about. Maybe the there's a um, a way I can use boats in here because the Thames is really at the core of the city and it's at the core of my story, and so that's how I ended up with um, the Lady of Shalott because I started thinking about okay, well, what you know? I, I mean, it's a it's a Victorian poem, and there were a bunch of Victorian paintings done of it, and it's also just a really compelling story that dates all the way back to you know sort of medieval stories. It's from the Morta Arthur, um, the original story about Elaine, and um, so yeah. So I was just I was just drawn to the idea of using boats instead of cars. <laughs> mm, I have so many more questions for you, Karen, but there isn't time. I just want to point out I loved how you wove in moral issues about right and wrong and crime and punishment and good and bad. And I wish there was time to ask you if you always weave philosophical questions into your storylines. I want to know more about the connections between the books, but I'm just going to have to say everybody's going to have to read this book or at least one of your other books to find out. So the question is, what next for you? What are you working on now? I'm working on the sequel to Down a Dark River. It picks up in September, 1878, and Inspector Corvin has been made the interim superintendent at Wapping um, at the River Police. And there is a, this is true history, there was a boat called the Princess Alice that was, it was kind of like what we now think of as like the hop on, hop off again buses. There were, um, there was a series of these steamships that would go up and down the Thames and for two, two shillings a day, you could kind of hop on and hop off. And on September 3rd in the evening, it was coming back up to the Thames to dock right near London Bridge and a coal ship ran into it. And this is like a, like a, a house running into a car. I mean, it's huge. And um, the Princess Alice broke into three pieces threw everybody into the water and over 500 people drowned. And because it's a hop on, hop off, nobody knew who was on the boat. I mean, this threw London into a complete panic. And so I kind of began with that. And that's sort of like the core beginning of the mystery for the, for the next book, which is going to be called Under a Veiled Moon. And it releases in November of this year. Wow. I cannot wait. It sounds wonderful. Thank you so much for joining me today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. It's been a great way to start my year. And thank you for joining me. Again, this is G.P. Gottlieb, author of the Whipped and Sipped Mystery Series and host for New Books and Literature, a podcast channel on the New Books Network.
Today I've been talking with Karen Oden about her new mystery, Down a Dark River. Thanks for listening, and I hope you're always immersed in a juicy novel. Happy reading.